And now I think we're finally at a point where we can begin to uncover these other dimensions of the meditative experience that maybe 20, 30 years ago were considered to be taboo. But now that, you know, I feel are deeply, deeply important for us to investigate. And that is this area of the biofield, as we call it, you know, yet another term. Raghu, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everyone, it's Mind Rolling. I'm Raghu and I'm back with uh, a wonderful new guest, Dr. Shamini Jain. Shamini, nice to have you. Nice to be here, Raghu. So um, just to give a little bit of context, uh, the work that Shamini does is around, really around consciousness and healing. And actually you have a uh, an initiative around that, right? What's it called? The Consciousness and Healing Initiative. So oh, there you go. <laughs> forward. Um, also Chi for short, because of course, it just happened mm. to be the Consciousness and Healing Initiative. Yeah, that's so, great. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we're going to hear about that work and how it can uh, we can all get a little bit of help to get ourselves more in balance, uh, which will be a good thing. But can you... How about talking just about, you know, how you, where and how you grew up? You're of Indian heritage. Yes. And um, did you grow up in America or in India? So, Raghu, I actually grew up in the town that I happen to be in now. And no. That's a whole story. But, you know, I grew up in the South in a small town called Greenville, South Carolina. And my parents moved here almost 60 years ago. They were the first Indians in the town, actually. So I grew up on a dead-end street in the country, surrounded by friends that were Baptist Christian, growing up in the Jan spiritual tradition. So just like my last name might su suggest, I, um, I am a Jan. I feel very deeply tied to the Jan lineage, and it has in really inspired me to do the kind of work that I've been doing with, you know, for my life, really. The, uh, so being in that place, you know, being born and raised here in the United States in the Deep South, you know, realizing really soon in life that there are multiple ways of seeing the world. There are multiple ways of experiencing what we may call God or the universe or our deepest soul and our consciousness. Um, and growing up here in the West, also in Western traditional schools and some of the best, you know, colleges in the country, Ivy League schools and so forth. Mm -hmm. I also became deeply aware of the fractured education that we had when it came to essentially eschewing spiritual knowledge and spiritual teachings from around the world, whether we talk about indigenous traditions or, you know, traditions that may not be considered as so indigenous. Um, there was something deeply missing because I would read these books when I was a child certainly on metaphysics, you know, Jan's pride. If anyone knows anything about Jainism, you know, it's a very small religion. Some would even say more of a philosophy than a religion with its main tenet, um, which we're known for as being nonviolence or ahimsa. But of course, there are many other tenets also. Um, so growing up with that and also reading about metaphysics, reading about the energy body, the, you know, the assertion that yoga could balance the autonomic nervous system. Now, this was all, you know, in the 80s and 70s. So there wasn't actually that much known about it. And I was the daughter of a chemist. Right? Oh. My father's a chemist. And so he said, 
Shamini. Everything in the world is explainable by chemistry and physics. <laughs> we also had the unshakable belief of the human soul, karma, and all the teachings of Jainism. Mm -hmm. So I thought this is interesting because you, you know, you're a card-carrying empirical scientist, and yet you have this deep, unshakable belief of the soul and you know the understanding of how that can guide your life. But yet I'm going to school and I'm learning about neuroscience. I'm learning about health. You know, I'm learning about all these things. But there's nothing discussing these these deeper truths, these deeper principles, and their application to living, to wholeness, to health. Wait, I now you're a teenager that. thinking these kind of things? Yeah, I really was. I was actually really? even younger than that. Just really very curious about these fractured worlds that I was seeing. Of course, because I had a foot in both, right? Yeah. And and my own experience, um, I, the other part of it was I grew up in the South and I've always loved to sing. So I sang every chance mm -hmm. I would get. And uh, I learned very early on whether I was singing mantras or, you know, Christian prayers, the power of song, the, the power of sound. And that kind of, you know, sent me in a direction to really try to understand the nature of vibration. And that has really been a um, kind of a kernel of my deep inquiry throughout my life is really understanding the nature of vibration, its relationship to consciousness and the healing process. Mm. Well, I was doing other things myself when I was 13, 14, 15, 16, <laughs> that I wish I would have spent a little bit more. But I did get to the point where I, I was so fed up with the empirical context that I was living in, as you just referred to it, that uh, I fortunately was led. And of course, that was the psychedelic revolution yes. uh, at that time. So which, I was, which was going on too in the 80s. And, and that definitely influenced me, you know, as a teenager, oh, yeah? I took in all of that too. And, you know, really just <clears throat> reified to me that there's a whole spiritual world that we're not talking about and that we deeply need to connect with. Um, to remedy some of what is going on in the so-called real world, right? Yeah, the so-called real world. That's a good way to put it. Oh, mm -hmm. uh, um, so I mean, some of these words of uh, you know that represent kind of the work that you've been doing, they're almost unpronounceable. The neurophysiology and psychoneuroimmunology. I got that. Okay. <laughs> I've never heard of psychoneuroimmunology. So, and uh, please explain these terms. <laughs> well, Raghu, I'm not surprised because 50 years ago, that word didn't exist. Okay. And the reason it didn't exist is because we didn't even believe our brains were connected to our immune system. And so it was really through the dedicated effort of scientists and medical doctors immunologists, psychologists who came together and said, you know, there's something going on here. We're noticing that our patients that have certain types of health issues all are sort of carrying a certain way of being in the world, you know, call it personality or emotional experience or whatever. And then there began to be many, many questions about, you know, resurfacing again in this time of mind-body connection. So psychoneuroimmunology, and by the way, we're not the only ones that say that's a really hard word to say. We call it P&I for short. It's much easier to say. They say if you say psychoneuroimmunology seven times really fast, you can get your degree, right? So <laughs> So we'll we'll call it P and I, right? Much easier to say. 
what is PNI taught us? I mean, through the work of, you know, wonderful researchers, including Candace Pert, who wrote a seminal book called Molecules of Emotion and Bob Ader and, and so many others, we began to discover that there is a very, very deep physiological truth behind our mind-body connection. So all those things that those yogis were saying in these books that I was reading as a child, if you practice Nadi, you know, Shodhana, or you practice alternate nostril breathing, or, you know, some of these other practices, you can harmonize your autonomic nervous system. Well, I don't know how they knew that, right? And they asserted it. And I have to say, as a kid, I, I was a skeptic. I was kind of like, well, how do they know that? <laughs> you know, like, where's the data? Well, psychoneuroimmunology shows us that the data is very real. So what we know now, of course, is that our emotions have a deep effect on our physiology. They're very interconnected um, and that we can create health simply with our breathing, with our connection with energy, with our connection with the deeper core of who we are, our consciousness, we have that experience, of course, in our spiritual life. And now we know that it actually affects our health as well, mm -hmm. including things like helping us live longer, helping us live without as much physical disease, even including things like heart disease, um, potential prevention of pain, of course, anxiety, mental and emotional suffering, but also physiological suffering um, in many ways. So, so it's a beautiful field. And it was my home field of study as my PhD work. So I did my undergraduate work in cognitive neuroscience at Columbia University as an undergrad. Back then, we were just looking at what part of the brain lit up when we lifted an arm or something. I mean, it was very rudimentary, you know, in the 90s. And of course, it's progressed significantly. But even then, people weren't really systems oriented. So when I found out about psychoneuroimmunology, I said, oh, here, they're really starting to look more at the whole person. I think this is what patients need. Patients need this. It's not just about our brain or even our conscious thinking, right? There's so much more going on. Mm. Can you give us any anecdotes, personal anecdotes of how you started to get into the realization of, of the way, the interconnectivity of mind, body, spirit, basically, is what we're talking about. Do you have any any kind of anecdotes from your own? I mean, you were doing this, you were going to school, you were getting all of this knowledge. How was it affecting or was there any experiences that really um, exemplified what it was that you were finding? Through yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll tell you about the pivotal moment and I write about this in my book, Healing Ourselves, because it was such a powerful moment for me. So as I mentioned, you know, as a singer, I knew about the power of vibration. And actually, even when I was at Columbia, I told my professors, and back then this was considered controversial, I want to study the effects of music and mm. sound on healing. And they thought I was crazy. Of course, now they're multi-million dollar NIH grants looking at yeah, the power right. of music right, for healing. But back then it was like, what? And I, you know, I really, I looked into, you know, the different perspectives and the the subtlety of sound, again, beyond the brain, you know, the understanding that uh, Nada Brahma, the world itself, is sound and the four levels of sound as explained in the Vedas, all of this. And I said to myself, how am I going to study this subtle vibration? How am I going to understand that beyond just measuring brain changes? It's not satisfying to me. I, I want to understand the nature of vibration. So I was really holding that in my consciousness, in my field. And interestingly, when I was post-undergraduate, taking a, 
a research internship uh, job, really, at the Palo Alto VA Hospital and Stanford University. We were placing electrodes on patients with Alzheimer's disease and schizophrenia and trying to learn something about their brains. And um, I still had this pondering question, which wasn't being answered in the research I was engaged in. And I had an offer. I was living in Santa Cruz at the time to have a Reiki session. And I said, Reiki, what's that? You know, oh, it's this really cool kind of healing therapy. What's it about? Well, you're just going to lay on the table and I'm going to place my hands on you. You know, I'm going to invite your spirit guides in. And, you know, I'm the skeptically trained neuroscience kid at this point. Right. So I'm like, okay, it's probably just all placebo, but whatever. I'll just go for it. You know, like, what do I have to lose? So I hopped on the table and this young woman, kind of like your typical Santa Cruzian, you know, woman, um, started doing her thing. So I'm here laying on the table, fully clothed for those who haven't had a Reiki session. You know, it's not like a massage. You're not manipulating tissue, right? People may place their hands on and off the body. In this case, she had her hands on my body, but she wasn't manipulating anything. And she got to my stomach, you know, around my solar plexus. And all of a sudden I felt this massive tightness pain even, which typically you don't feel in a Reiki session. And typically people feel very relaxed. They feel the energy flowing. But in this case, my awareness was brought to something that I was energetically holding in my body and I didn't even know it. And as I began to inquire, what is this about? I began to realize that I was holding a pattern of stuckness in my mind, in my body mind that was preventing me from, you know, kind of speaking out what I was thinking and feeling in certain situations. In essence, I was taking my own power away. And what was wild, Raghu, is when I realized that I was having that experience, what this tightness was about, the stuckness, the moment I had the realization that you're giving away your power was basically the message, everything moved, the energy moved, Mm. you know, and I could feel the vibration moving throughout my body. And, you know, I had two thoughts at that time, you know, one, wow, I really need to work on this (laughs) Two, this is amazing. And I bet this could help so many people. And this gets me closer to understanding the nature of vibration and its power for healing. So that pivotal moment was actually what set me on my journey to say, who's doing studies in this, in this area of healing, you know, now we call it biofield healing back then they called it energy medicine. Some people still do so many different healing approaches. I learned that there are healing approaches that have been practiced like this for thousands and thousands of years, right? External Qigong is one example, laying on of hands in the Christian tradition is another. These are time honored practices. Then we have more modern ones like Reiki and pranic healing and Joe Ray and from so many traditions across the world. And yet at that time, especially, there was almost no research on it. And I began to question why, because I was also, you know, doing, you know, having meditation experience, interested in meditation itself. Long story short, my most widely cited study is still in meditation. It was a very, yeah, very vanilla. (laughs) I call it like the most boring, obvious study ever. A randomized controlled trial comparing mindfulness meditation with a comprehensive relaxation, you know, group and a control group. And we found, not surprisingly, that um, because this was a hypothesis, and again, to me, a fairly obvious one, that the practice of meditation and relaxation both result in decreased stress, but when we practice mindfulness meditation, the way it does that 
is by reducing rumination, the tendency of the mind to hash things over and over again. So we found in those who trained in mindfulness, a reduction in ruminative thoughts and distractive thoughts, and those mediated the effects on, on relaxation, right? So very nice study, but I was interested in those deeper aspects too. And I went to a very early mind and life gathering then, oh, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. early 2000s. And I don't mind saying this. <laughs> Um, because I think things have shifted a bit with with that society is certainly the people within it. Um, and there's just much more openness now to broader points of view on meditation than there was then. But back then, if you dared ask the question about spiritual experiences or energy, you were basically shut down. And that's what I saw and I experienced. And I said, you know, I wish I could study this nature of subtle awareness within the meditation context, but I can see that the people that are in charge here really don't want to go in that direction. What's that um, all about? What, what was very happening? political. In my view, it was just political patriarchy, that typical thing that happens in academia. It's, you know, I, I sometimes joke, Raghu, that I'm a recovering academic, even though I still have one foot in the university, um, because it's just a question of what you're serving, you know, and what you're afraid of. So in my view, you know, seeing where they were going, and I remember, I, I think I, I can share this freely. Alan Wallace sat with me. I'll never forget this. Because I was so flummoxed, you know, I mean, again, especially again, coming from my culture where we talked about these things very openly, it was described in our books. Why is it taboo for us to be talking about energy and subtle vibration? And he sat with me and he said, Shamini, you don't understand. Some of these researchers that are here have no idea what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. They're not experiencing this. And so they think it's all delusion. Wow. And I said, wow, okay, but <clears throat> you don't know what the nature of this is. I just flummoxed that there's no openness to people even talking about what their experiences are. We're not talking even about the real or the unreal. You know, we're we're really, literally just letting people share what their experience is and helping understand how the nature of that experience could facilitate a healing process. But anyway, it was really those two pivotal moments, I would say, that set me in the direction um, to really begin to explore the nature of vibration. And it's it's really been an amazing journey. Because, you know, I think that meditation in and of itself and the way that it's been studied, so much good that has come out of that research, you know, so many ways that it has been adopted in the healthcare system, you know, for full benefit of patients. And, and that's wonderful. It's very, very laudable. And now I think we're finally at a point where we can begin to uncover these other dimensions of the meditative experience that maybe 20, 30 years ago were considered to be taboo. But now that, you know, I feel are deeply, deeply important for us to investigate. And that is this area of the biofield, as we call it. You know, yet another term, Raghu. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what's the biofield? So the biofield is simply fields of energy and information mm. that guide our health. It is what we experience in our subtle awareness, what often people experience when they take psychedelics and they feel energy running through the body. They make contact with spirit. They feel different dimensions. Certainly we can feel this in meditation and in so many practices. And what we're learning about these fields of energy and information is one, they're, they're numerous. There are many ways to look at it. We can look at electromagnetic energy. 
like the biofield of cells and even cell-cell communication. We now know, for example, that the electric communication between cells can actually help prevent the spread of cancer. That is when the cells are communicating well, electrically speaking, they can help mitigate another cell from feeling like another and developing into a tumor. You know, that's not just storytelling, that's actual science um, that is published. But there are also these subtle aspects of energy and information that all of these healing practices have been tapping into literally for thousands of years. And we know that there are over 425 clinical trials of these kinds of biofield healing therapies mm-hmm. with tremendous benefit for patients, including reduced pain, reduced anxiety, reduced symptoms in cancer. And down to the cellular level, we can even look at this in cell in animal studies, which people have done. I'll give you a sneak peek. You're going to see a tremendous amount, hopefully, of attention to a set of studies that is ongoing at MD Anderson Cancer Center, led by my dear colleague, Dr. Lorenzo Cohen, who I also suggest you have on at some point. He's wonderful. Mm. Um, They have been looking very, very carefully and deeply into biofield, this type of energy healing um, with different kinds of healers on mouse models of cancer. So here there's no person, you know, typically people think of animals as not having placebo responses. That's a lively conversation in and of itself. But let's just let that aside. What they're finding with these biofield healing practices under very, very rigorous, carefully controlled. I mean, I can't even tell you what, what the process has been like for them to do these studies, internal review boards, external review boards at MD Anderson Cancer Center. You know, this, this research has to be airtight. They found now in multiple studies that these biofield healing practices, that is essentially consciousness itself and the direction of consciousness toward an animal who has been injected with cancer can reduce the spread of tumors in in the cancer, in the mouse, down to reductions in inflammatory cytokines, which are cell signaling. I mean, cell, you know, um, you can think of them as immune transmitters essentially in the body down to changes in cell subsets and even cell signaling for those who are biologically inclined down to alterations in protein kinase levels in the body. So this effect of energy down all the way into the physical system is very real. What's the actual process by which they sent this energy? In these cases, the mice aren't being handled, right? They're not being touched. But what is actually happening is they're in a plexiglass kind of cage. And the healing practitioner is sitting across from them, literally just directing energy. So they're not holding the plexiglass. They're not holding the animals. They're just sitting with conscious intention to direct healing energy to them. And these are different types of healers at this point that they've studied, not just one certain type. And in my book, Raghu, I talk about all of this. I mean, I really, you know, Sounds True actually um, invited me to write this book because... and, and Tammy Healing Sack, ourselves. Yes. Actually, the, the story behind that is I was getting ready for a podcast, just as this one. And, you know, as usual, frantic, you know, recovering academic, doing too many things, sitting down. <laughs> okay, who is this podcast with? Oh my God, it's with Tammy Simon from Sounds True. I should have prepared, you know. She's just amazing to interview with. And she said, Shamini, before we begin, I have two questions for you. Where is your book? 
and can sounds true have a track at, crack at publishing it? And I said, Tammy, I never thought about writing a book. Why do you think I should write a book? She said, someone needs to explain that there's a real science behind this. And you've been doing this work for years. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're able to share about it freely. And she said, you know, even for me as a long-term meditator and founder of Sounds True, sometimes when I share about the energy medicine stuff, I get pushback. And I want people to know, you know, that this is very real. So it was really at the inspiration of her that the book was written. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, it's it's woohoo, right? As soon as you have energy involved, especially with some of our confrères, brothers and sisters who uh, practice uh, Buddhism in particular, that would start to be something that they would shy away from. Just, just, I mean, it's a little like um, I'll go all the way back. Uh, to when Ramdas and I and others uh, hung out with Trogium Trumpa Rinpoche, and he used to say, "Oh, here they are, the light and love people. They've come to join us." And yep. he would mercilessly uh, get after Ramdas about all that, but which it was a good thing for us. It was the beginning of the training that we had. In you know, we all obviously were in the tradition of Bhakti Yoga, Yoga of Devotion. But uh, alongside of that, which is really our legacy, is discriminating wisdom. Buddhist, in particular, discriminating wisdom mixed in with that. But uh, you're doing, as far as I'm concerned, the same thing for revealing the possibilities uh, with energy healing that um, are are based in sound scientific uh scientifically revealed um, truths. And you know what is fascinating for me about it, what it leads me to personally, this exploration of the biofield. I think in a time where we really need to understand this message, we're all connected. Because when we look at these these studies, right, and some of these occur across distance, and we see this sort of electrical communication happening between cells, and we learn about the biofield communication between trees and between us and the earth, right? It's helping us really uh, dispel that myth of separation. And I think that is really the key. That's what makes me so excited about this research is that it really is helping us dispel that myth. And in a time where there is so much mental and emotional suffering, where so many of us can feel so alone, to simply know that we're not alone, you know, and you can again get woohoo with this if you want. Spirit is always here. Your soul is always connected with you. You know, however you want to, there's always someone there for you. You know, yes, this sounds all light and love, but it might just be the truth. You know, <laughs> it might just be the truth. So we don't want to go into spiritual bypass with it all. I get that. And, you know, in Buddhism, there are many sects, of course, Mahayana Buddhism and so many different, uh, you know, aspects of <clears throat> Buddhism can lead us into more of a philosophical, perhaps, discussion about the nature of Shiva and Shakti and the relationship between consciousness and energy. I've certainly had those discussions with my, you know, dear colleague, Deepak Chopra. The first time I met him, I was fundraising for a meeting in biofield science and healing. I think it was around 2014 or 2015. He he caught wind of this meeting I was doing. Oh, yeah. I got an email from Deepak Chopra in my inbox. I'll never forget. It was like 
Saturday morning or something, making breakfast for the kids. And I looked at my phone and I said, oh my God. And my husband said, what? I said, I just got an email from Deepak Chopra. He wants to meet. And I'm like, this is wild. And he was 10 minutes down the street from where I lived at the time in, uh, in, in Carlsbad, Encinitas, California. So I sat with him and explained to him what the meeting was about. And, you know, he, it was like, I'll never forget that meeting. It was like, just being bore, bored into, you know, kind of just really, you know, trying to figure me out, I guess. <laughs> and I guess he was satisfied enough with the conversation. He said, okay, Chopra Foundation will help support this. You know, we would like to partner on this very important initiative with consciousness and healing. And they have been wonderful partners of the consciousness and healing initiative since. But at the end of our conversation, he said, Shamini, you know, this is all great healing and Reiki and, you know, making someone feel better. But in the end, it's all consciousness. <laughs> and I remember walking out thinking, of course, of course, Nipek Chopra is going to say that, right? Mm. And I said, well, he doesn't understand what I'm talking about with energy. So for years, we enter into these interesting conversations with each other sometimes about the nature of Shiva and Shakti. And so as you say, in these traditions, how do we understand it? You know, whether you're looking from more of a tantric position, you know, or Advaita Vedanta or Kashmir Shaivism or Buddhism, you know, it is the question of what you consider, not just the nature of reality, but where is your focus? You know, and yeah. And what I mean by that, Raghu, is, you know, growing up as a jam, I would read these texts and essentially they were all, the world is Maya. This world is Maya. It's all suffering. It's all illusion. And the only way to, you know, essentially get out <laughs> is to clear, and Jan's talk a lot about liberating karma, right? So in the way that these books were written, which were mostly by male monks, you know, transcend the senses, they said. The interpretation of that, unfortunately, for lay people sometimes became deny the senses. Well, we know that doesn't work. You know, years of psychological data will tell you emotional repression does not work. Um, that's not well, what we And Buddha, Buddha did say that as well. Exactly. So the misinterpretation of these texts, right? So yes, we understand that suffering is caused by attachment and aversion. That is the fundamental truth that underlies so many of these spiritual traditions. Absolutely. When we begin to explore the nature of subtle awareness and its path in our spiritual liberation, you know, we can choose. I choose to look at it simply as this, fields of energy and information. So for me, Tapping into the biofield is a very useful way of developing my spiritual nature because, again, it helps me connect. It helps me feel a tree. It helps me feel the forest to deep, deepen that subtle awareness. It helps me deepen my relationship with spirit. You know, whatever that means, each of us have a different idea and relationship, you know, with that, what, what we mean by that. But I think it can be very, very useful. And so for me personally... I'm going to abstain from deciding in my limited mind whether the world is Maya or not, or whether energy is real or is it not. And in the end, I'm a pragmatist, right? Kind of like William James. Is it useful for our spiritual development in this time of humanity's, you know, evolution? And I think it is. Yeah. You know, around this whole thing about Maya, reality and non-reality, I take umbrage with it. And I, I guess my best example, and this is probably a good good place to share this. Um, <clears throat> we were in 
Ramdas and I and others were in Allahabad in India, and we were uh, Neem Karoli Baba was staying in a house with some devotees, and we would go over there every day and just hang out. And one of those days, Ramdas said to Maharaji, "Isn't it true?" Karma and grace are one. Mm. Right? So, you know what he said? Neem Karoli Baba said, uh, uh, something like, I, I'm not talking in public about this. Something like that. I mean, he, he, <laughs> he ignored it. Then later in the day, he sent a message to Ramdas. Tell Ramdas he and I understand each other very well. Because Ramdas was going through, it can't be that the it's not possible that they are different. There can only be one thing going on, but it was an intellectual understanding. Mm -hmm. Much later, like not that. Uh, so there was a. I don't know if you know who this is, but when Neem Karoli Baba left, there was a, a, a woman saint named Sidima, who was mm -hmm. very close to him for many many years decades and decades and decades and she we didn't really know her uh we knew about her but she never came out front until he left that body and then suddenly there she was and we were able to you know spend uh, enormously blessed years having an indian mom kind mm -hmm. of you know until yeah. she left about five years ago um well one day I said to her, you know, and I told her this story of Ramdas asked Maharaji, we should call him, is karma and uh, grace the same? And she said to me, of course they are the same, but you cannot understand that from the, the nature of the dualistic, she didn't say it in those words, but this is what she meant, reality that we are living in so she said you act as if there's something to do until that completely dissolves and then at that point i guess you're like neem karoli baba where there's nothing going on of a doer there's just whatever is needs to happen that was our experience with him with everything that went on, he didn't teach. He, he just said aphoristic kind of stuff. You know, one it's all one, subek, subek. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing he said. So, uh, and then further, another example of that is when Ramdas wanted to go to help uh, in East Pakistan. Uh, there was the war that was going on in the early 70s. He wanted to take his Volkswagen bus and go there and become an, so he could help people, ambulance or whatever. And he, but he asked Neem Karoli Baba, who said, no, Ramdas, don't you understand everything is perfect? And later on, of course, Ramdas, none of us understood that by any means. Mm -hmm. Later on, when um, Ramdas would talk about the perfection of everything, he would always have a, a little, uh, you know, but a little but, I am not living that, so I cannot fully understand or express it. I have intellectual understanding. 
this to me is the same thing with people mm -hmm. talking about Maya and what's Maya and what's, you know, what's reality. It's, I think it's absolutely useless, actually. It's, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's an intellectual exercise. And, and my, you know, uh, I think best said when Maharaji said, Ramdas, you and I understand each other. So to cut ourselves off from acting in this Maya is to really cut us off from any possibility of interconnection. And I, I love, you know, the, the idea of what you were talking about, how cells react, you know, with the experiments around the mice and so on and cancer cells being, um, it's like if you transform polarization inside yourself, you probably transform that the development of cells that are in opposition to each other. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. You know, because here we're talking about things like the principles of coherence. So there's so much more you know, to explore. And we're not just hand-waving coherence here. But, you know, there is a sense that coherence can really happen. I'll give you an example. And mm. before COVID, we took a, a delegation of scientists and healthcare practitioners to India. We visited several ashrams, among them um, uh, the Sri Aurobindo Ashram in Pondicherry, which I'm sure you're familiar with Sri Aurobindo and the mother in their work. I actually had darshan of mother. Oh, and how lived beautiful. there for a while when I first went to India. Oh, how yeah. beautiful. Yeah, no, I'm very fortunate that way. So they were, you know, wonderful, wonderful people, obviously, and very collaborative and inquisitive also, as we mm. are, you know, inquisitive yeah. Western scientists. So we uh, began to just explore what would happen you know, to the space in the room and potentially between us during the meditations that they do. And so we studied them as they typically meditate. So these were advanced meditators in that tradition. And uh, Muse was nice enough to donate headsets to us for the for the project. And we collected, um, you know, that data and other data. And what we discovered in that exploratory session was that Indeed, during certain times of the meditation, we found evidence that people's EEG or electroencephalograms, the electrical activity in their brains, would come into coherence. That is not just that parts of my brain would cohere with other parts of my brain, but my brain would come into coherence with your brain, electrically and statistically speaking, but not all the time. So then we were curious, okay, because there were like seven different parts of their meditation of what they did, right? They did this and then they did that, like different techniques, you can say. So what was it that they were doing when the brains actually came into communication, you could say, came into coherence with each other? What's the word? Give us a, a short definition of coherence. I mean, I'm understanding it through what yeah. you're saying. But. In this case, it's literally like a synchrony of the phases of the waves, that are taking place. So in EEG, you know, we talk about alpha waves and beta waves and theta waves, and we look at the frequencies and the amplitudes of those waves. Mm -hmm. And that's typically how we can read things about our state of consciousness, gross states of consciousness, like whether we're thinking and focusing or whether we're relaxed or whether we're more in creativity, dream state, or even sleep state. So that's typically the way we'll look at an EEG. But a novel way to look at it is to look at the connections of EEGs between people, not just within one person's brain. Mm -hmm. And so we're looking at EEG coherence. We're actually looking to see whether there is some synchrony between what my brain's electrical activity is doing and what your brain's electrical activity is doing, right? So this is what we saw. We saw some sort of connection that is some co coherence between 
people's brain function. And this was a group of six or eight people. So we're seeing this across, you know, between people. There's a whole way that we looked at this. We have a whole report on this on our Consciousness and Healing Initiative website if anyone wants to take a peek at the data and learn more about the project. Um, but we asked, okay, well, what were they doing? Well, interestingly, they weren't trying to cohere with each other. They weren't like, oh, let's all get into coherence. No, they were actually all focusing on the interior experience. And I think that's so beautiful, right? They were actually all naturally, just naturally together. Yes. So they allowed for coherence to take place. Why? Mm. Because they became quiet and, you know, going more into a pratyahara kind of state, right? The interior experience, the interior landscape withdrawing from the outside world during that period of time where we Mm. saw the coherence. Um, Really beautiful. And I mean, these are the ways that I hope to see, you know, more contemplative research go, you know, kind of more intra, instead of just within the person and, yeah. and me, myself and I kind of between us and with us in the world, you know, and, and I think there's a tremendous opportunity for us to learn so much more about the impact of our contemplative practice on, on the world. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I'm glad yeah. to hear that. That also brings in the reality of uh, and I think you've worked with various people, indigenous people, indigenous cultures, and that wisdom. I mean, I I look for. I just actually did something with a, a wonderful indigenous uh, person named Anita Sanchez. Oh yeah, she's lovely. Oh, you know her? Oh, she was great. And you know, I I like to foster that in terms of this podcast and what I share, because it, and I'm sure you're going to agree. We need that wisdom. Yeah. To be given back to us after what we've done, of course, it's just uh, beyond the beyond. Not you, we, mm-hmm. white people in the West. Um, so, uh, yeah. The what? What is your experience with? Uh, I, I think that because of this work that you've been doing and the and uh, you know coming up with these realities of how of these of the interconnection and. You know, yeah. having people who just went in and had cohesion with each other because they naturally just went into that, you know, small, quiet space inside themselves that we can just be practical and had that. How, how about, you know, have you brought in the indigenous wisdom that really correlates with what you've been proving out? Absolutely. You know, the Consciousness and Healing Initiative, we describe ourselves as a collaborative, um, collaborative accelerator to advance you know, leading humanity to heal ourselves through integrating the wisdom of spiritual practitioners, healing practitioners, scientists, educators, and artists. And um, I am seeing very clearly that even within our community of energy, so-called energy healers, biofield practitioners, there's a deep need to sort of place in the center of the of the understanding and the wisdom indigenous wisdom. And I think this is just, this is a global thing. This is a global thing. It is about um, not only understanding, but honoring and practicing what indigenous communities across the world have known and tried to teach us about our inner connections with the natural world that everything is alive. And, you know, it's interesting you mentioned this and you said, oh, well, you know, this applies to us white Western people. I don't think so. I think it applies to a lot of us and myself included. Yes, I'm a woman of color. You know, I'm East Indian descent. And I was musing with my family recently on, you know, what's interesting about our traditions, 
there was never a deep teaching about our connection with the natural world the way there have been in some indigenous traditions, you know, and I'm thinking about shamanism and, you know, the traditions in South America and here in North America and Africa and, you know, in so many places, we, we had a different way of viewing things in a way that almost caused more separation. I think sometimes with the natural world, I am not this body. I'm not this, I'm not that. So I don't think that's helpful. Actually. I, I think that we have a lot to learn from the traditions that are teaching us how we could literally save our planet by realizing that everything around us is fundamentally alive and wise and conscious and listening and responding and we really need to wake up to that. So when we talk about biofield science, some of the most exciting work going on is really looking at not just the interconnections between people, but between us and the planet. You know, there's just a really beautiful work that's being done there. And the teachings and, you know, curanderismo and the guiding of how we will scale out this work um, more broadly in hospitals, clinics, while and while honoring the indigenous wisdom traditions, and maybe they don't want to be certified and they don't want to be licensed, right? There's a lot that we discuss um, at the Consciousness and Healing Initiative to make sure that we're upholding and honoring the wisdom that mm. is there. Mm. Yeah, it's super important. It's well, super important. I beg to differ, though, with your background and your family background and where you come from, nonviolence, non-killing, Mm -hmm. is directly related to uh, the interaction between you and all people, all environment, yes. all sentient beings, all non, you know, I mean. It's it is. No. So in that way, yes, we absolutely <clears throat> honored and know that everything is conscious. Everything has a right to being alive. That's right, why we right. practice Ahimsa. But often it was taught in the spiritual text that I read about liberation, you practice ahimsa to liberate yourself from karma to escape the world of Maya. Right? Uh -huh, I, see. Well, I think that it would be nice if it was more taught from a compassion point of view. Mm. You practice ahimsa because you honor and revere and respect life. And you choose not to harm anything that you don't need to harm. Why do it? That's a very different frame of reference. One mm -hmm. allows you to be more integrated in the natural world. And another almost suggests you eschew it. Mm. No? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, you brought up compassion. And uh, it's the core of basically everything that we got when we went to India with Ram Dass back in the day. It's what is at the very, love and compassion is at the core of what uh, our heritage is and what we express now and everything that we do. And um, yeah, let's talk about compassion. Basically, uh, and uh, you know, wishing healing on others and the power of that. You, you talked about it a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, but let's talk about it more. I mean, you know, and it's been proven, I think, through scientific studies, maybe I'm wrong, that actually uh, when you have an awareness of someone who is sick and you send out uh, best wishes, prayers, whatever, that it is effective. Yeah. doesn't matter what, there's no time and space that interrupts that possibility. What, yeah, tell me about that. Yeah, I really do agree with you. I feel that um, the experience of compassion allows us to break through those fallacies of separation again. Mm. 
Right. And of course, allow for this healing streams of grace, as some of my colleagues might say, to to work their way, you know, to allow that process to happen. I think of a study that was conducted by Kathy Kemper, who was at the Ohio State University. She's a pediatrician um, and has done a lot of exploration into loving kindness, but also from the energy healing perspective. Oh, yeah. One of the studies she did was a really fun a kind of controlled study where she had two people in a room. One was a very experienced loving kindness practitioner and the other was just a new person and they're sitting in a room together and sometimes they were both reading and some one time she had the loving kindness practitioner sort of place their arms on the person in direct loving kindness. But then in another condition, besides just a resting condition also where they're just resting and reading, right? Actually, that's what they're doing. They had another condition where the recipient thought that they were just resting and reading. But really what was happening is the loving kindness practitioner had their magazine open, but they were actually directing loving kindness to the recipient. The recipient just didn't know, Mm. right? And what they found was regardless of whether the recipient knew or not, whenever the loving kindness practitioner was directing loving kindness to the person, their heart rate variability, the dance of their autonomic nervous system shifted into more of a rest and digest state. That is the high frequency aspect of heart rate variability. So they were all hooked up, right? Yeah. yeah. So we're like there, you know, in these studies they are basically, they have a heart monitor that's measuring their heartbeat from the mm. dance of the heartbeat. We explore something called heart rate variability. Many people may be familiar. It tells us about the balance of our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. The parasympathetic nervous system, of course, is the captain of our rest and digest nervous system. So when we come into a state of deeper relaxation, deeper rest, deeper calm, then our parasympathetic nervous system becomes more activated, right? Mm -hmm. That's what happens. Mm -hmm. And so essentially what she found is when a person was receiving loving kindness, whether they knew it or not, their autonomic nervous system would go into this greater state of relaxation and peace, Mm -hmm. you know, as from the heart rate variability. So yes, it's, it's very real. And again, it's, I think it speaks to, you know, sometimes you may not even feel the streams of grace that are around you, that are working with you, but we can, if we choose to. And again, that's why I feel these biofield practices are so powerful. And again, it's not just energy healing practices, Tai Chi, Qigong, so many forms of meditation, opening to presence, allow us to really sense into this. And I think there's a beauty and a purpose in dissensing into it. Um, for me, it feels very supportive in my spiritual practice when I can actually feel those streams of grace. Mm-hmm. Um, it helps me recognize the the deep interconnection, the love, the support that's here, that compassion. It's actually very palpable, energetically, mm-hmm. subtly, spiritually. It's very, very palpable. What are you doing with sound, by the way? You say you sing. What, well, what are I you, do how are you expressing things. yourself? <laughs> I do a few things. So um, one thing I've learned is that most everyone feels shut down with their voice. I've talked to, you know, I do a lot of speaking and teaching, and I've noticed that a lot of my fellow speakers are scared to sing or share their music. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I also, you know, as a performer, I've, you know, hung out with lots of my singer friends who were afraid to public speak. So I find that very curious. Yeah. So, 
some of my in-person work and I'm actually doing two things in June and July and sound healing retreats. One is at Sunrise Ranch with the Shift Network and the other is at the Omega Institute um, in late July on, you know, healing, it's sound healing retreats essentially. And mm. my work in those retreats is really to help us open up to the power of the voice explore these different subtleties of sound. So we do a lot of play with the voice. We kind of just open up and liberate the inner child a little bit with the vocal stream and, you know, make sure we're really connected to our energy. And then we use sound as a tool to open ourselves to the experience of the biofield, to these subtle aspects of energy. And then we explore the, the work with mantra to connect us more vibrationally, coherently with certain aspects of consciousness that might guide our path. Um, so I really love that work. It's super fun. I do a lot of it in my in-person teaching, you know, at different retreat centers. I just yeah. finished teaching at Shivananda Ashram. I love that place in the Bahamas. It's yeah. such a beautiful, coherent place to teach. And um, I teach at Esalen often. I think I'm going to be there in September. So I love that opportunity for us to come into embodied experience with our own voices. Mm. Um, and then on the artistic side, I'm, I'm kind of working on my first ever original album. I did really? a lot. Of, yeah. So that's been a really fun journey. Again, you know, what I, what I share with people is just allow the creative journey to unfold. I joke that the path to enlightenment is through the ridiculous. A spiritual teacher mm -hmm. once taught me that. And for <laughs> me, it's certainly been true. I've gone through cover bands, you know, Guns N' Roses cover bands, which I called Guns N' <laughs> Roses, where I came out as Moses for part of the show. And, you know, I mean, just wow. all kinds of ridiculous things that I've done and, and enjoyed. <laughs> but when you open to that ridiculousness and you just don't take yourself so seriously, including just opening to your own voice, you know, just something as simple as that, um, then your creativity will guide you hmm. and it will heal you. I really, um, I've had that experience for myself and I see it in others and it's such a joy to open <laughs> people up to that. I love nuns and roses and uh, <laughs> this wonderful scientist. I love that combo. That's yeah, so we even great. became a Jeopardy question. It was hilarious. One day, apparently, our, you know, tribute bands across America, and there we were on Jeopardy as an answer, I guess. And no. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew, you know? Oh, oh. That's great. You know, uh, first of all, sound is personally is a, a major path, but not just for me. But in relation to what happened to us in India, then, of course, Kirtan, yes. uh, Krishnadas emblem. I think you know who Krishnadas is. Of yeah. course. Yes. Yeah. So he emblemizes that in the, in the West as a Westerner who really embodies that, yeah. uh, you know, shall I say, uh, as, a, it's, as a practice, which is why he has such a huge audience. He's not entertaining anybody. He's doing it as a practice. Oh, he's such a deep, resonant tone. I mean, yeah. I just love listening to his voice. It's uh, quite yeah. amazing what he carries in that vibration. Yes. Yeah. And now I'm going to, so uh, this is something I used to do with him before he became Krishna Das, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the famous, uh, and, you know, so it's a definitely, it's a practice that, that uh, all of us who were in India back then, not all of us, but many of us still carry, carry in our day to day. But now, I'm when I'm practicing, I'm going to have consciousness around the biofield yes. in terms of that. I'm absolutely positive it's been happening without <laughs> me having any kind of consciousness around it. Mm -hmm. So this you've introduced a wonderful new ingredient to just be aware of, you know, 
because the most important thing is this, we were talking, as you were mentioning before, uh, really interconnectivity, which is Dan Siegel's, uh, Dr. Dan's new book, yeah. if you know who Dan is. And uh, that is very much what is going to help us break through this really rock solid and we're immersed in this uh, just awful division you know the us and them has become so large that these you know what you're suggesting is proving the reality of this interconnectivity and that we must must and that's why we talk about uh, indigenous wisdom and bringing that you know back to four here with us so great work you're doing well thank you yeah and I, if i could just add to what you just said what it leads me to ultimately is again you know my book is called healing ourselves and my friend one of my friends said shamani what i don't like that title you know healing ourselves it makes it sound so lonely and we have to do it ourselves and you know and everything but as i say in the beginning the first thing that this jan nun said to me that i'll never forget was you want to understand healing first heal yourself and that's not a selfish thing because as we move through those layers of our conditioning all those layers that tell us we're separate from our own emotional experience our thoughts other people you know and we do that deep healing work with ourselves then we actually expand the ability to elevate healing in others mm -hmm. through understanding that deep interconnection yeah. but we have to do that in our work you know, otherwise it's wounded healer, Chiron complex all over yeah, again. Right. <laughs> it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, and that's really what uh, our whole, uh, well, if we have a foundation that is Be Here Now Network is part of Ramdas.org, all of it, everything that we do, love, serve, remember, which is the only instructions we got from Neem Karoli Bama. Love everyone, serve everyone, remember the divine. And... Uh, so that is primary in terms of you first have to heal that. And it's not a matter of you heal it and then you go out in the world or anything like that. But you have to be day-to-day -day working. You have to be. It's another um, wrong-headed way to say it, shall we say. <laughs> but it, it would be fortuitous for all of us, if we individually healed that deep part of ourselves that is, you know, conditioned in ways that are counterproductive to helping humanity, shall we say, and with that healing goes along the idea of we just radiate from that place to everyone we meet is the, there is nothing else to do. Yes. And, and I think your stories of Neem Karoli Baba really exemplify that, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, very, very much so. So great to meet you. Great to meet you too. Thanks for having me on the show. It was a delightful time to converse with you. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Healing Ourselves, the book that uh, Shamini has been referencing, uh, it'll all be in the show notes and connectivity to, to her as well and the work that she does. And if you want to go deeper, you can actually look at some of the results of uh, various... Uh, um, you know, some of the things that she's been doing to prove the reality of um, 
our interconnectivity particularly. And, and the fact that uh, we're not just talking about, we're talking about, you know, how we can actually um, relate with what's going on inside ourselves and help that by virtue of some of these, uh, the reality of the way in which things are connected. And I love that story about, um, you know, the cancer cells. Yes. You know, and the polarization, if if you can transform that polarization, that will go a long way to, uh, you know, having a good effect, especially if, if one has uh, this, this kind of disease. So, yeah, that's all really fascinating and wonderful news. I mean, it's not news, but for lay people like myself, that's why, you know, I thought, wow, this is interesting. What's the biofield? What is, uh, you know, what's the psychoneuroimmunology? You know, so thank you. And, uh, and we'll have all, the, all of the references up in the show notes. So uh, everybody, this is Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com. And, of course, we have all of uh, our wonderful friends from Ramdas and Alan Watts to Sharon Salzberg, uh, so many different people to get uh, ourselves more balanced and healed on a day-to-day basis. Thank you, Shamini. We'll see you again. Thank you.